You're listening to EVH and Gear TV, brought to you by Design39 Media. Visit design39media.com for all your website, photography, and video production needs. Microphones for EVH and Gear TV are provided by Rode Microphones. An official Van Halen merchandise is provided by vanhalenstore.com. And now, here's your host from Ontario, Canada, EVH artist Eric Broadbent. Hey everyone, happy Tuesday to you all. Welcome to EVH and Gear TV. We are live. We're joined tonight by a great guest, Michael Charvel from the Charvel family. How are you doing, Michael? I'm doing good, Eric. Thank you for having me on the show. Oh, a pleasure. A pleasure. Thank you. I wish my father could have been here with the interview as well, but I'm in Southern California right now and he's up in Northern California. So. Oh, okay. Well, that makes total sense. Well, as long as where everyone is, they're safe, that's all that yes. matters. Yes, amen. We're all, everybody, the Charvel gang is all safe. And all of the friends that I know that escaped are safe as well. So That's good. That's good. Well, normally every show, when I do this every single week, and I do this in a few different formats, I always like to ask how my guests are. But I understand, you know, that'd be kind of a loaded question asking you. But you know what? You've got some smiles on your face. And I, you know, we're talking to you on camera and off camera just a moment ago. I think that's a pretty good thing coming from what you've come from. You're, you're at least you're in good spirits right now. Yes, you have to stay. You have to have a positive attitude. You can't, you know, like my dad always said, you just got to pick yourself up and dust yourself off and move forward. Yeah, that's the thing, right? Uh, and I mean, you, you don't know when these things are coming. You you cannot really be prepared for them. No, it's, well, you could be. In, in hindsight, there's a few things they could have done. The town could have done to be a little bit more prepared. But basically, I went to bed Wednesday night. You know, same. We all have our little routines. We're creatures of habit. Sure. Uh, and you never, if you told me Wednesday night that when you get up tomorrow morning that you could possibly die and lose all your things, I'd be like, no way. To a fire, not going to happen. So yeah. you're 100% correct. You just never know um, when some horrific event like this is going to take place. Not that this is anywhere near the the, the, the catastrophe that happened through California, but here in, in our little part of Ontario, Canada, we've been getting a lot of tornado warnings, and that's very, very uh, rare for us. And when they, they send the alerts to your phone, and once it gets to your phone, like it's pretty much considered, you know, it's from the government, right, or the weather network. And in, here in our house, my better half here, Nocturnal Butterfly, or Sandra Lee in the chat, you'll see her, or we'll hear from her tonight uh, several times. She's always like, we got to prepare like a, a survival kit. And and it sounds silly, you know, it, it does sound silly, but no matter where you are, whether you're in the mountains, whether you're in plains, whether you're, you know, in rural Canada, you know, th there could come a time where you're going to need that. And I kind of kick myself in the butt for not listening more than I, than I do. I should kind of put some attention to that. Right. And I'm like... Here's the question I had. This is later on into the program, but I'm just going to ask you right now. I'll come right off the off the cuff. Was there was there enough warning from like the media and like the cities and things like kind of take us through the alert system that you were uh, given as far as the fire? Well, I I'm real fortunate. My brother-in-law is the chief battalion chief for the fire station. Okay. So he called my father that uh, morning. I'm losing track of days because I'm so I'm still kind of punchy right now. Sure. I don't know what day it is, but um, Thursday morning, I believe that's when, it, that's when it took place, is Thursday morning. So he called my father Thursday morning and said, you guys need to pack up, and this is a serious fire. It's getting out of hand. You need to leave right now. So my dad called me that morning and basically just relayed the message, get your stuff and get out immediately. Um, so that's, that's what I did. It's like, okay. So I took his advice, and there really wasn't that much time. The main thing with this fire is the the wind was so bad that it just, I think within two or three hours, it just decimated the whole town because the wind just took it and took it and took it. 
So it happened really, really quick, uh, which is a scary thing. So yeah, I took my dad's advice and you know tried to get you know get out of there as soon as possible. Well, I have some friends over in the Calabasas area, and I see I wasn't even focusing on par- the the paradise. It's the, it's the city, right? Is that what it's called? Yes, yeah. yes, sir. And I did not know that's where you were located. And then I had a good friend, um, you know, because in, in the Line 6 community, as I was telling you off the air, I do a, a show with Line 6, and a lot of our friends working in Line 6 were all in the Calabasas area. That's where their headquarters are. And so a lot of people, they were they were evacuating and stuff like that. But one of my good friends, um, he shared a story on Facebook saying, you know, that like all of uh, Paradise is devastated. And then seeing some of these pictures, and I, I know, as you say, the wind was what did it. It's just like a fireball, um, yes. you know, coming coming through. You know what I mean? Um, it was just horrible and so quick. Like it's just it's something that you only expect to see in uh, in zombie movies or you know uh, the movies. Exactly. I I called my friend, my best friend Lou Diamond. He moved up from Orange County to Paradise, and he doesn't know the area that as well as I do. Right. Uh, and I said, you need, I sort of gave the same exact message, get your stuff and leave now. I said, oh, it's not that serious. I can wait. I could do this. But the problem that people don't understand, unless they're firefighters, is you don't have time in a lot of cases when you have the wind like that. 30 or 20 minutes could mean that you're not getting out alive. Yeah. You know? So you have time is of the essence. Um, so I would advise people who get warnings. And to answer your question, after my dad called me, you get the computer like, hello, this is New County. You're, you know. And they give you the warning too. Okay. Uh, but people, and my my advice people who have fire situations is when you get that call, take it seriously. Don't lollygag or sit there and try to get all your stuff because you can always get replacement material things. You mm-hmm. can't. There's only one of us, you know. So my advice is when you get the call, take it seriously and get out. Get your family and get out. Um, and like you said, and I agree 100%, it would be nice to have a you know like a bag with a flashlight some maybe a little cash in it some some basic clothes some water yeah maybe some flares just as an emergency pack so when that happens you can grab it and get out um because like what happened to, in my house because my house is the, was the closest to the fire um from all my family's homes i was like right in the, the worst part of it is the power goes out so now it's it's pitch black and outside is pitch black oh, even though it's in the morning because of all the smoke so you can't see you know, if you don't have a flashlight or a candle, so that that compounds the stress. I can imagine. Because you know you got to get out of there and you, you want to grab something, but you can't see what you're doing. So I'd highly recommend um, a, a you know, like a double bag, like I said, so you have something to to get out as an emergency. And another thing, also, which is unnerving for me, because again, you're not expecting it. Mm-hmm. I had about a quarter tank of gas in my truck, right? So it usually takes. Uh, from Paradise to Chico, it's about a 20, 20 minute drive, give or take a few minutes. And when they co- when I got the call, it took me seven hours to get off the hill to Chico. So the whole way down, I'm looking at my gas tank. I got a court. I'm going, God, please don't let my truck run out of gas because then I'm I got problems, you know? Yeah. Because the traffic was insane. Because a lot of people freak out in these emergency situations. Um, so the other thing I can share with your viewers is. I know it's it's easier said than be done, but try to keep level headed. Try to calm down, and because when you freak out, that just makes the problem worse. But that's human nature because most people aren't they don't go through this. They don't, they don't know what to do, and they start freaking out, which it compounds the problem. Try to be relaxed. I'm not saying I didn't freak out. I did for a few. Of seconds. course, of course. <laughs> but um, have some gas. Always have some extra gas in your vehicle. 
and in case you have to get out of some place because all the gas stations are closed down at this point. There are you can't get gas. Of course. And you're in nonstop bumper to bumper traffic. So if you run out of gas, you got a problem unless someone's going to give you this hitchhike and get a ride or something, you know. Yeah, I, um, I'm going to be in trouble now tonight because I'm very guilty of that. And I know my, my better half is in the chat right now. And she's always like, because I'm driving on a quarter of a tank of gas all the time in my Camaro. And she's like, you know, first of all, you're hurting the car. And I'm like, I know, you know, and then second of all, what if we have to get out and you can't get gas? So I, I, I've learned something very, very, I mean, I've learned from her, of course, but I'm being reminded of it again tonight that, you know, it's something you shouldn't take for granted to have that uh, fuel. Not not everyone has the luxury of driving around with a full tank of gas all the time. But if you can, please do. Yes. And like you said, it's bad for the motor, too. It is. You know, you run the sludge at the bottom of these tanks, you know, and then it's running through at the very last bit. So, yeah, it's yes. a, yeah save your car, save your life as well, too. Maybe what we'll do to kind of d- take a different turn here a little bit, we'll jump over the chat and say hi to a bunch of the, the friendly people that are over there right now as well, too. But we'll start off with the worst of the worst, and we'll try to make the, uh, throughout the night get a little bit more positive and happier. The story that you shared, um, uh, I guess it was Popular Mechanics or whoever that interviewed you, you've obviously had a few interviews since uh, since the fire. But yes. the the story, I mean, the the way you told the story, and obviously it was whoever interviewed, the, the, the person that interviewed was very, very good. They brought out a great story. Yeah. But this, he plays the guitar. He plays in a rock and roll band, just to interject. He, was, okay. he, was a really, he hit it off really well, okay. and uh, he's a guitarist, and he plays in a band, so we... We hit it. He's a really nice guy, James Henry. So that's why the interview is so good then. Okay, that's why the interview is so good then because you guys, uh, you know, connected on a on a great bond music, and it's like I'm sure you probably talked about music for so long. There's okay, let's do this interview now, and then it went pretty good. So that's cool. But take us through the story, and I don't want to I don't want to make you rehash these things, but I know you're doing pretty good with it now. Take us through that story, uh, you know, from you know, basically there's embers falling now, and okay, now this this is probably going to get our house. Kind of share with our viewers. What led up to that, and then you know the traffic on the road, neighboring cars, and things like that. Well, basically, like like I said, my father called me that morning, and because my brother-in-law said that this is this fire is serious, you need to evacuate. Um, so I took my father's advice, and I, you know, the power went out. So I I already knew I had a little duffel bag there under my bed with a few shirts and a couple pairs of socks, just because I'd had it there. Um, so at any rate, I when the power went out, I'm scrambling for that. Um, grab a couple things of water because you need water. Mm-hmm. If, you, if you get stuck in a situation, you have to have water. So I grabbed some water, grabbed that. Um, I got in my truck, and when I went outside, like I said, it was, it was pitch black, and the whole air is full, filled with smoke, and you're seeing these little ambers from the sky land on my garage roof, my house roof. And where we live, it's, um, it's, it's in the mountains. Um, and so I have a, my backyard is literally a forest. Okay. Something like you see in a movie. And I'm just seeing ambers flying in the in my forest. I'm going, and then I look up and caddy corner my neighbor. His all his trees are all on fire. Oh boy! You know, you know big flames. I'm going. Thinking, God, this is. Uh, I'm not trying to be negative, but if I make it out of here alive, I'm probably not going to have a home. Or, right. This is all burnt down at this point. So I my house from the street's about 150 feet. So I drive my truck up to the street, and of course, there's total chaos. And I'm looking across the street, and the other neighbor's home is all on fire. And there's a car, like, you know, five feet from me that's on fire. Hmm. And the traffic jam is nuts. So while I'm in my truck at this point, uh, I see other neighbors running out of their homes with, like, two armfuls of stuff running down the street. That's what really freaked me out. I was, and I knew I was in trouble, but at that point, I thought, man, I, 
I could die here possibly. Um, and I can't get my, no one's letting me out of my driveway because because of traffic and everyone's freaking out. So I thought, you know what? And you're thinking real quick at this point because you're, you're just like, your thought process is very fast. And I'm already hyperactive to begin with. <laughs> so uh, I tell everyone I'm not ADD, I'm just hyperactive. Okay, <laughs> that's good. At any rate, I, uh, I grabbed my bicycle. I've got an 18-speed 18, 18 mountain bike. And I just put my duffel bag on me and thought, maybe I'll just ride. come in good shape. Uh, I'll ride my bike out of here. It's all downhill once I get out of it. Perfect. Easy, easy drive. But that was a bad, soon found that was a bad idea because, you know, I started riding a couple things and the heat and the smoke, the, the fumes from the smoke were horrendous. I, I just couldn't even breathe. And I had a tree to the uh, right of me. I could feel the fire on my face from this tree. So I thought, I can't ride out of here. I just can't. So I thought, this, this is not safe. I, I'd be safer in the truck. I've got more protection. So I ditched the bike and got in the truck. And eventually, somebody let me out to get on the main drag. But then while I'm in the truck, there's, there's oak trees and pine trees all over paradise, you know, huge trees. And to my rider, there's this tree, and it's huge, and it's completely on fire. And I'm thinking, man, if that tree falls on fire, it's going to block the road. Exactly. Then you're really deep. Yeah, we've got a huge problem because you got, you know, two or three, four hundred cars behind this tree, and this tree's on fire, and everything else is on fire. So I was like, God, please do not let that tree fall right now. Let it let it burn out, but not because you know, how you gonna how you gonna move it, you know, and who's going to move it? Yeah. You know? <laughs> now, was there any way you could go left or right? Was this there's not? Was this wouldn't be a freeway at that point? But are there ditches? Are no. there? No, this is just basically a street. Paradise. Uh, there's only three ways out of Paradise. Actually, there is four. You could go down Honey Run. Mm -hmm. uh, I believe two of the exits. I believe they told me they were on fire. So basically, there's only only other two ways to get out, which makes uh, the problem worse because everyone's trying to. It just makes the traffic worse, obviously. So yeah, I I went down uh, the, one of the main drags, which is Clark Road, and got out that way. And then as I was driving down Clark, you could see on Skyway the because the streets are parallel. Mm -hmm. The other main street, which is Skyway, we could see fires on certain parts of Skyway. So um, the good news, the tree didn't fall down, thank God. Um, and they slowly, you know, inch by inch, the cars were going out. Like I said, people were running down the street uh, trying to, to get out of there as well. And uh, so that was, you know, that was a tough situation. I figured once if I could just get off of my street, I should be. I was thinking I could be safe. And ironically enough, and they, they're not releasing the names just yet, mm -hmm. uh, on the street that I live, five people in their cars didn't make it. Oh. And they, they, they died because they just couldn't get out. Yeah. There's just, you know, there's too many people. You're locked in. And they probably, honestly, yeah, I remember reading that. And you all, they probably didn't even get a chance to even exit their doors. The fire just came in so fast. Yeah. So. And it's it, it's a it's one of the if if you're gonna die it's one of the one of the worst ways to die in my oh, opinion. I, I can imagine. I, I drowning is one thing, you know, falling. Uh, we, getting kicked out of an airplane could be another. Yeah, you know? yeah, but, yeah. So, yeah horrible situation. So yeah, I, I can only imagine being in a grid. It's one thing to be in gridlock and period, but gridlock basically, you know, you know, to be in hell on earth with fire right. surrounding you, you can't go backward, you can't go forward. Um, I just, I hope, I hope a lot of us are never, ever in that situation. I hope so too. Well, like I was sharing with a friend of mine, 
and I'm not trying to run for the mayor of the town, I promise. Sure. I do guitars, I don't, I don't do politics. <laughs> <laughs> but these are just some suggestions, maybe, that could help. Um, and keep in mind, when you have a fire like this, if you have your hose on and you're watering, it can get so hot the pipes can explode the water, right? Okay. So, but this could be a, this could help save some homes possibly, is I would make it mandatory that people actually have, besides having sprinklers in the house, have them on top of the roofs, right? Okay. So if you do get the warning, at least you can get the roof wet. And if you, only if you have like an hour getting the roof wet or two hours or 30 minutes, that could be, and I'm not a firefighter, but I'm, I'm just using logic. That might be the difference of you coming back to your house or not, because if you had to get water, roof, mm-hmm. um, and maybe it buys you enough time for the firefighters to get there to get the fire. Uh, second thing I would do um, is I would make a, a law because, again, it's a lot of pine trees and bushes and stuff, and a lot of people don't have time to clean their yards or they don't have the money to do it. I understand that, but make it get the city, have the city put a bunch of people to work, so we're, we're creating jobs. Mm-hmm. And, People who can't afford it, they're low income, we understand. They come out and clean their yards for free. And the people that have, you know, who can't afford it, make them say, hey, you, you got to clean it up or we're going to have to find you because it's your ultimately for your protection and our neighbor's protection. Clean your roofs, clean the gutters. Um, another thing I would do, like in World War II, they had the air raid sirens. Mm-hmm. Hear that? You, you knew, you heard that siren, and you knew that danger is coming. Uh, because a lot of where we live is predominantly a retirement community. So people, they may not have the tech, the computer technology of Facebook and, you know, the iPhones. Right. But if you have a loud air siren or, you know, speakers somehow and say, ladies and gentlemen, you need to evacuate at a high decibel, that maybe could save some lives. So these are just some suggestions. Um, and then maybe figure out, it, it, educate people. Say, hey, if this happens, have a flashlight. Uh, have your cell phone charged if you have a cell phone. Have gas in the car. Have some water. Have a little food in the car. You mm-hmm. know, it's like a, a trail mix or some beef jerky. Non-perishables, yeah. Yeah, have have some of these things. So educate the people, uh, ultimately to save lives and save their property. That's what I would suggest. I like the idea of the sprinklers on the house, and as you said too, it might give you the opportunity to come back to your home, but also it might buy you a little bit of time in the exit plan as well too. Because sure. sometimes you, maybe your home might be a temporary shelter, uh, especially if you're around the woods like you are, you're surrounded by trees. And if that, if you have a little bit of, um, um, you know, some uh, water to, uh, you know, to coat the house, you have a little bit of time to maybe plan an exit a little bit better. So you still have to get out of there as quickly as possible, but it does buy you a little bit more time. But great, great tips there as well, too. And I like the fact you talk about the air raid sirens. And the town where I moved from, we lived there for quite some time. They still have one. Um, and, it, and the cool thing about that is it requires no power. It's just a crank, right? Someone's on that crank, and they're, and they're riding it. But also, like, the, the big horns, as you're talking about, too. And a lot of those cases... They're, you know, they could be driven by uh, car, a car battery or whatever. So you, if the power does go out, those are still things that can be run on DC, you know, and sure. that, that could be a lifesaver as well, too. So very, very good suggestions. Yes. Another thing I'll share with you is they have, because Paradise is basically, from what I understand, pretty much the whole town level. Okay. Um, they're not allowing anybody up there, civilians, because it's not safe. So only police, firefighters, hazmat, pg are allowed up at this point. Mm-hmm. But if they're going to rebuild it, my suggestion with the technology that we have today to build homes, there's materials now. I was watching on YouTube. Um, you can make, uh, instead of using wood for two by fours and two by sixes, they have steel now. Okay. And they have a special kind of drywall. I forgot the name of it, but it, it, it stands on super high temperature. 
And why not use our technology to build houses that can withstand some of these heat? And that would help out quite a bit too, in conjunction with the sprinklers yes. and the debris. Um, and then the last thing I'll share with you is where safety goes is with, with family, because all my family lives up there, but we're all in different locations, right. is have a couple meeting places, in case because cell towers go out. Um, hey, if something ever happens, we can all meet over here. Well, if that place is no good, we can meet over here. Just to make sure everyone's safe in one piece. Yeah, and A, B, and C, because, yeah, this place might be taken over. We can't get over there. So that's a great idea. Um, yeah. You know, I, I hate to compare things like fire to, like, I, I kind of toyed with the idea of, uh, like, an apocalypse. But you see that in these, you know, horror, horror movies and things like that as well, too, even the TV series, which we all like. And, you know, people are searching for their families because they have no way to radio. Some people are lucky enough to have a walkie-talkie or something like that. But, um, yeah, if you're if it's a regular place, not a bad idea. And plan fire drills in the house. Yes. Yeah, totally. So, yeah. That, those are my suggestions to the town, whether or not they'll listen to me or not is another story. But if I was running the place, I'd be here some suggestions. I don't know all the answers, obviously. I'm not a firefighter, but they just, it seems common sense stuff to me. But do you think sometime in the near future, um, once, you know, the people are allowed back into the town and things like that, or even if this is held in another, you know, offshoot location, do you think they'll have a town meeting where people can voice some, some feedback and some concerns, maybe suggestions as you shared tonight? You think they would. But I don't know. I yeah. mean, I, that makes sense. Is, you know, let's listen to some of the people living there and hear some ideas and concepts. Yeah. Uh, it's, you know, but whether or not they'll, there's a lot of things because sometimes, you know, the, the government will fund the state and they get money from different places. So a lot of it might be a really good idea, but maybe they can't afford to do it. Yeah. Or they, they got to get a grant from some other institution. So again, I'm not a politician. I don't even mess with politics. No, I so. can understand. Yeah. yeah. And it's not my uh, field of expertise at all, but. I've heard that a lot of times it might be a great idea, but there may not be any funding for it or, or you know, you know, it's red tape. There's always red tape and that kind of stuff. That's right. Yeah. And the sad thing is it takes so long to rebuild as it is. I mean, it could be a couple of years to rebuild, maybe even a little bit longer. And then all that red tape that leads up to that, that's just before you even start rebuilding. It could be a couple of years of red tape before the rebu- rebuilding sure. starts. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I just, and the other problem, I didn't mean to interrupt you. No, the other problem is if they want to rebuild, they can't right now. They've got to wait till it's safe. They've got to, just the cleaning process alone, um, and then there's a shortage of construction people, obviously, because you have it's a over all this work. Yeah, and so they're probably get people from out of the area. They'd have to construction workers to uh, help rebuild. Yeah, that's going to be yeah. There'll be people from neighboring states all around the place coming in to uh, to. Yeah. Are you are you seeing a little bit of volunteer work for? I mean, obviously now not right now you're not because people can't really get in there. But did the community come together at, at the time of emergency that you kind of saw and heard kind of thing? Uh, I don't know. Yeah, uh, because I've been kind of I've been moving from house to house and it just it's been total chaos on my end. I'm still, you know, I'm just exhausted from it basically. Uh, so I don't. <laughs> I I will share with this share share this with you the support that my family has been getting. It's been extraordinary. I mean, um, the love and all the prayers and people, you know, sending us support has been, uh, it's just been absolutely amazing. Uh, well, that's, so. that's good to hear. And that's one of the reasons why I, I really wanted to reach out to you and have you on the show because the people that watch this show are guitar nuts. You know, whether they're any Van Halen fan or whatever, they wouldn't be watching this show if they didn't like guitar. And the family name just goes back so far. Like I get goosebumps thinking about it. Like just what the what your father and yourself and the family has put on the table. 
um, I thought, why not talk about it? And whether we get uh, donations or contributions or things like that, um, that's awesome. But let's at least create some awareness. And what, just some of the things you said right off the hop here, like about safety prevention and, and things don't take things for granted. If anyone learns even that from tonight, I mean, I'm learning from it. I just learned some great things from you. So I'm, I feel very happy with what we're kind of communicating with already. Yes, I'll share another thing with you too for the guitarists. I know, obviously, I'm a guitar and amp junkie. Like, yeah. it's, it's an addiction. My advice to people for your uh, viewers is if you have a guitar collection or an amp collection, take some time, write down what you have, when you bought it, how much you paid for it, what do you maybe take a picture of it and put it like on an iCloud or another data, online database. So, and have those, make sure those guitars are insured with the company. Um, and that way something happened, God forbid, if you can't get your gear out, at least you have an online storage of pictures, the date, when you bought it, how much you paid for it, what it's currently worth, what the conditions were. So when it comes insurance time, you have a record of all your things and maybe a serial number. Uh, not only that, besides fire, if you had flood damage or someone broke in your home and stole your gear, mm -hmm. you can say, hey, here's a serial number. This is the date. This is the color. This is, you know, a description of it, the condition. Um, that might be a wise idea. That's this a very good idea. I've had. And, oh, I didn't mean to interrupt. I, I have a friend of mine. Uh, there's a special company. That I don't, I can't remember the name of the company, but all they do is they specialize in insuring musical instruments. Okay. So that's one thing. The other piece of advice I would give you with the insurance companies, because we're just now starting to work with them. Um, and obviously they're like, you know, most insurance companies, the minute you're a day late on paying them, they're, they're right on your case when you're trying to get your money out of them, <laughs> you know, Oh yeah, we can't get a hold of you. They don't call you back, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, so I would, when you get your policy, these are things that I'm learning as we're going is because the policies are so convoluted that usually layman's like myself, cause I'm not an attorney. Mm -hmm. You just sign off on it, but you really don't know 100% what some of these things mean, right? So it might be a wise idea to maybe go to an attorney and spend you know a couple hundred bucks or whatever it costs and have the attorney look over the agreement before you sign it so yes. you know 100% what you're getting into because the way these insurance companies work, oh, I thought I was insured for that. Well, you are, but you didn't have this, this, or that, so we're not going to cover that. So it might be a wise idea on your policies Pay a professional attorney to look through it and I, have them explain it to you in layman's terms. Go, dude, you're all covered except this little clause right here doesn't cover this and that. That's right. It might be hard to come up with a couple hundred bucks or even 500 bucks here now, but imagine when it's going to be $50,000, $100,000, or a million dollars later. Yes, that's it. Yeah. The other thing I've learned from this too, because my parents have some property, they didn't have, they were trying to save some money like because nobody likes to pay insurance and nobody thinks anything's ever going to happen. That's right. Uh, they didn't have the highest insurance on a couple things. So if you do get something like an event like this, and if you can afford it, spend the extra 15 or 20 every month. God forbid something happens like this. You're going to come out of it. Okay. Versus going, man, my house is worth fill in the blank. And I didn't put, I have insurance, but now I'm going to actually lose money because I didn't get enough insurance on it. Um, yeah. and that's one thing I'll dovetail real quick. We have a GoFundMe page. Um, it's doing extraordinarily well. It's up to like 45,000 right now, mm -hmm. but you're also going to get a hater on there. Right. And we've had like 600 people send a lot of love and you get one guy, I won't name any names, but like, yeah, don't, don't they have insurance? Uh, don't they build guitars for rich rock stars? And to answer that question, yes, we do have insurance. However, 
we haven't got any insurance money from anybody and we don't know how much we're going to get and we don't know when we're going to get it. It might be a year from now. It might be six months. It might be two years. Um, and like this other guy said, well, they build guitars for rock stars. These rock stars, well, we do build guitars for rock stars. However, usually when a rock star buys a guitar from us, depending on what level of rock star, sometimes we give them the guitar free of charge. Mm -hmm. So we're actually out money and our labor. And maybe if it's a rock star that's maybe not quite known as much, we'll sell them the guitar at artist cost, but we're not making any money on it. Um, so I just wanted to share that because we had one guy on there harass and oh, like, it, it, it happens. It happens. I think there was even an insurance question in the chat. And that's the thing. See, the, the lifestyle looks so glamorous. And even yeah. some of these rock stars, I you know, I, I won't mention names, but some of these rock stars, even they look like they're living the most glamorous lives. But their their expenses are paid. They're getting free food here and there. They're getting a free car if they promote in a, in a commercial or a video or something like that. But they may not be making bank as much as you might think they are. You know, so exactly. never judge a book by its cover. And that can be taken the opposite way as well, too. You could be looking at some hobo on the street thinking, you know, oh, sir, get away from me. And he could have he could have bought you. Um, you could have paid your rent or your mortgage the next month with what's in yes. his pocket. Yes, 100 percent. And what we're doing with all the money we're getting, we're not taking people's money and going out and buying a Porsche with it. We're taking we're getting the money to help us buy machinery and gear. Mm -hmm. And we haven't decided yet because it's been total chaos here. We're going to donate a, per, a certain percentage to some fire victims. We have we don't know who yet, so we're not taking the money to go out and buy a Ferrari with it. We're yes. taking the money to reestablish ourselves and buy the machinery. And a lot of stuff my dad has it's irreplaceable. You can't get some of the stuff back. Yeah, he made it. That's the thing. That's what people don't understand today. In today's day and age, I mean, this is probably something your dad and you talk about a lot. But you know, for kids now, want getting into the music scene, want to play guitar, we can have guitars made in any corner of the globe. We can get a sure. guitar and an amplifier for four hundred bucks that plays pretty darn good because it's made overseas where labor costs and things are cheaper. But you guys, the, the tools, like your dad, this is so what's so cool about him. He's like the Eddie Van Halen to me because you know Eddie Van Halen didn't have what he wanted, so he you know hodgepodge stuff. Your sure. dad needed these tools and jigs and things like that. They really didn't exist, so he invented them, and those can't be replaced. I, I can only imagine rebuilding with tools that don't exist. Yes, it's going to be, uh, you know, he's going to we're starting from scratch again. Yeah. Uh, the funny part is some of that stuff is still standing. The pin router that he made, it's all burned up, but it's still standing. I saw the pictures. Yeah, just getting kind of, kind of a ghostly reminder of what was. Yeah, he built an air compressor. He found an old air tank and he welded up a motor to it. That's still uh, part of the motor you can see in there. But that air compressor he built, it's a funny story. He built that like 40 years ago. And it's we still we were still using it because he had it. He had the motor, the RPMs of the motor geared down. That, that thing's lasted us for 40 years. He, he, we'd even joke, I can't believe that thing's still running. You know? Go to Home Depot and try, try to buy one that'll last that long. Yeah. Well, the problem with the new tools, uh, as a generalization, obviously, is a lot of the tools now are made in China and Taiwan. Yeah. And unfortunately, the quality of the metals, just the quality of the parts, aren't as good as something made in the 40s and 50s when it was made in America. The of actual course. metal itself is better. And those old tools are bulletproof. That's right. Look look at our old appliances. I mean, maybe they gave us cancer and skin disease and things like that, but they lasted 50 years, didn't they? Like fridges and stoves and, you know, all these kind of things. They they yeah. co cost like $400 a month just to plug them in, but they lasted, didn't they? Yes. Yeah, totally. So it's challenging finding tools now because every, not everything, but a lot of the tools now are made offshore. Yeah. Because um, the manufacturer, I understand what they're doing it. They want the price to be competitive. Um 
but it's just hard to beat that good stuff from the 40s and 50s. I agree 100. percent They overbuilt it. They did. They did. And it's almost like it's almost like some engineers come in and said, look, uh, we're making a good product. Your your company here, you're making a good product, but we're not going to resell. We're like, this is going to last for life. So we need to kind of dumb this down a little bit. We need to make breakable. We need to make replaceable. And that's where we're going to be making the money in the long run. Right. You're 100 percent correct. Automobiles, everything. Yes. Even my dad was sharing it on the the Bridgeport mill that he had. Mm -hmm. He's all this mill is going to outlast my lifetime. He's all this thing is. You know, God forbid a fire doesn't hit it, but short of that, oh, yeah. that thing's going to outlast me. You know, it's built that well. That's right. I want to sh- I share a funny story with you because you remind me a lot of um, myself growing up as a kid, um, you know, two different environments. You working with your dad. My dad was an aircraft engineer and he was as respected as your dad in the guitar world. He was respected in the aviation world. He's one of those guys. He would do a, what's almost like, you know, you take your car in for a safety check. Well, it's like that with aircraft. It's called a certificate of airworthiness, and it's pretty pretty important when a, on an airplane because if that thing's not airworthy, you know, it's, there's problems to be found, right? So he would have pilots across all of Canada, sometimes the United States, fly their planes in, leave them with my dad at his airstrip, and then they would take a train home or they'd stay in the local town or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And he was one of those guys that would not pass anything, you know, like, you know, some of these car guys, you give them 50 bucks, a case of beer, and blah, 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 say, can you make sure my, my, my muffler passes, blah, blah, blah. My dad would never do that. But long story short, I was always there since the time I was able to walk. I was kind of like the wrench guy. Dad, you know, passed dad my wrenches and stuff like that. I'd like to ask you, you know, when it was like, I'm sure you're running around the shop as a young kid. When did you uh, kind of discover, like, what was it like, first of all? And then when did you finally say, you know what, maybe I can do what dad's doing, too? Well, I my dad built model airplanes when he was a kid. You know, cool. Wood, pretty plastic. Yep. We had dope on them and He'd fly model airplanes. He actually was taking pilot lessons for a little while. He was flying airplanes. Nice. But at uh, any rate, so he was building models. And so when I was a kid, he would buy me model airplanes. So when I would go to the shop, I would have something to do. So I wouldn't be, you know, messing around. So I would build model airplanes. Um, and then I start, you know, this is the 80s where hair metal is like the cool, coolest thing on the planet. <laughs> uh, I was a little kid and I would have all of his customers, these long haired, puffed out uh heavy metal guys come to the shop and um, I, I didn't play guitar at that time, but everyone kept asking, everyone, everyone would go to my dad's shop and say, can you make it like Van Halen? Van, all I heard was Van Halen, Van Halen, Van Halen. <laughs> so I'm like, you know, maybe 10 or 11. I'm like, then that name Van Halen alone is a powerful name. It's, it's unique. You don't, and as a kid, you're very impressionable. And I'm like, Van Halen, who's, I'm curious. The name alone is like, Man, who, what, what are these guys talking about? Why yeah. are all these guys coming here? Talking about Van Halen, so my dad, um, I know I'm getting off on a tangent, but he showed me the Van Halen One record. Yeah, and then I didn't, I didn't play the guitar, and then he played Eruption, and the part where Eddie's doing the hammer ons. I'm like, man, with all that rhythm delay, it sounded angelic like to me. Yeah, and then my dad showed me the back of the records. All special thanks, Ed. Thanks, Sharp Manufacturing. Um, so when I had all these people asking me when I was at the shop, the guitar, can you play guitar? I'm like, no. I start feeling like an idiot. All these guys, no, I don't play the guitar. I don't play the guitar. I feel like, you know, like <laughs> what's wrong with you? You don't play the guitar. So I picked up, I bought a, my first guitar for my dad. Mm-hmm. Uh, he didn't want to give me a guitar. He could have, but he's like, I'm try- at the time I didn't understand, but now I respect it. He's like, I want to teach you the value of a buck. So I went out and he said, you're a smart kid. I went out knocking on the doors, mowing lawns, sweeping. And I bought the first guitar I bought. I, I paid him $40. Of course, he set it up. It played good. Mm-hmm. It's a real thin Japanese guitar from the 60s, right? It's a big, thick, bulky neck. And he was like, if you stick with it, then, you know. So I, he gave me a Beatles book because my dad played 
five, six nights a week professionally before he did the guitar thing. I did not know that. That's cool. All in Southern California. Played a lot of, play, a lot of the same clubs that Van Halen played. Wow. Um, uh, like Barnacle Bills and places like that. Of course, my dad's older than Ed. <laughs> and in his, in my dad's era, the Beatles were the, they were the Van Halen of his time. Sure. So he, they played a lot of Beatles stuff. And that's why he had the Beatles chord book, which I just started. That's one thing I had to learn off of. And my dad showed me a couple chords, and I just learned some basic Beatles stuff. Um, but then when MTV came around, all the videos, like that was like crazy exciting because you're seeing videos with you know beautiful women, fast cars, wild <laughs> guitars. And I thought, this is cool, man. So I, um, my dad had, I think it was like half inch, might have been three quarter inch plywood. I would take his four by sheets. Eight, I'm probably about 12 years old this time, and mm-hmm. I would cut them out and make little miniature guitars about this big. And um, I would spray cam and take like the, the tester model paint, mm-hmm. and I would paint flames and tiger stripes on them. And I'd take little uh, pins, sewing pins, and glue those on the fretboard, making like frets. And uh, and I took a shoelace and put the shoelace with a guitar strap and pretend I'm a rock star, right? Right. Air- Matter of fact, a funny story, I when the Van Halen, and this is a Van Halen channel, uh, <laughs> Panama, remember the video Panama, Eddie's Swinging? Slide, yeah. no, sliding across oh, on his knees? Yes. Uh, I tried I tried that at 12 years old when my wood guitars, bad idea, was on carpet, <gasps> and I ran right in the corner of the, you know, the wall's a corner, right in my head. Oh, no. Still start at this day, it's all bleeding everywhere. <laughs> I totally love it. So that's when I started messing around the shop tinkering um the coolest and i wish i had these guitars i don't know what happened to them uh the coolest one i made was because my dad did stuff for a guy named michelangelo who plays oh yeah uh, Patillo, yep. mm-hmm. yes uh and he was coming to the house a lot and um so i cut out a double neck out of plywood nice uh, part of it, it was all jet black uh, i've served him to this day part of it was green leopard skin on one side and fluorescent pink leopard skin on the other side. <laughs> this is the 80s, so fluorescent was like at one time. Oh, I know. <laughs> and it's coming back, which is crazy. Yeah, yeah. Now it's so cool. I started uh, tinkering around in the shop, and then I would, I used to ride BMX bicycles, mm-hmm. like GTs, Redlines, Mongoose, and uh, I would tear those apart and paint them and fix them. And So I just started working with my hands at that level. And then when I turned 16, because my dad's big into hot rods, right? Said a lot of hot rods, and so I started messing around with cars and painting cars and lowering them. Um, so I started doing that. And my dad, at seventeen, he had a company called WRC Guitars, which stands for Wayne Richard Charvel. Okay. And at seventeen, I was just painting guitar necks all day. You know, because I, I graduated early. I graduated at seventeen. Yeah. And so, but so yeah, I was doing that, and that's how I just kind of slowly morphed into building stuff and painting things. Did you find it a fascinating process? Like guitar is pretty darn cool. I mean, you, you, when you when you break it down, you know the mechanics are pretty simple, but there's so many things, and that's why you see artists sometimes jumping from company to company to company because it's not because they're looking for the next best deal. They're looking for something they just haven't got yet. Whether it be the comfort of the neck, whether it be the weight, whether it be the reach to the upper frets, you know, there's so many things, and people look at guitars like, okay, it's just such a simple instrument, but it's not. But obviously, your dad hit on something very very early. You know, to have these rock stars knocking on the door saying, I want your guitar. I, I need to play this guitar. So let's kind of, you kind of mentioned Van Halen a few times. Uh, one of the, I talked about this off the air with you. You know, I, I said, uh, I'd, be, I'd be interesting to hear if your dad and your or yourself have any interesting Van Halen stories. Because sure. 
all of us, all of us that watch, you know, uh, all these videos out there, we're always trying to get to the holy grail of Eddie's secrets. And there's so much folklore; it's almost like he's a Loch Ness monster. We're never going to really know, with you know, the, all these little intricacies. But share with us any stories that you might have had, either with your dad and or yourself with uh, with Eddie's. Well, my dad has a lot of stories that I would hear as a kid because mm-hmm. obviously when Eddie was playing in '74, five, six, and seven. I was just a little guy, uh, but Ed would come in my dad's shop. Well, actually, Mike Anthony, the bass player, he's the one who found out about my father. Okay. And, and and he found out about my father through a guy named Brad Becknell who worked for my dad. And so Mike Anthony found out and then came over, and then that's how Ed found out. Uh, but pre-Ed, my dad was doing stuff for like The Who, um, Steppenwolf, Richie mm-hmm. Blackmore, did some work on Eric Clapton's guitar. So keep in mind, and this this is in the early 70s, and that time – there, there were no custom shops in Southern California uh, doing custom paint jobs, custom routing of pickups, different bridges, etc. It didn't exist. You basically you go to the music store and go if you wanted a professional guitar at that time it was pretty much a Stratocaster or a Les Paul. Uh, you know there were there was Rickenbacker, but I mean most of the rock guys played Les Pauls or Strats. That's right. You get guys playing Telly, so that was we're very fortunate as guitar players nowadays because there's everything under the sun. Mm-hmm. But in that era, there's half this. Over half it didn't exist, so guys would come to my. Well, actually, let me back up. My dad played the clubs for six nights a week, uh, for thirteen years straight, and then he met my mother, got married, and he actually got kind of burnt out on doing the nightclub stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and while he was playing, because he was good with his hands, once in a while he'd do quick modifications on guitars. So when he quit playing music professionally, he started doing repairs and modifications out of his garage. And then once the word got out, it just started. He got a, he got too busy and ran out of room, mm-hmm. so he got a shop. And then when he got the shop, uh, doing you know routing out humbuckers and tellies and strass, nobody was doing it um, at that time. And this is right around the time DeMarzio started coming out with aftermarket pickups. Okay. And soon after that, a guy named Seymour Duncan came out uh, with pickups. So my dad's you know doing custom routing and paint jobs. Uh, Fender found out about it and he got a contract to do all their out of warranty paint jobs. Nice. Fender was too busy. If, if something happened on the paint or if there's a warranty problem, they're making guitars. They don't have time to do warranty. Mm-hmm. So I got the contract for doing that. Um, and then after that, he started thinking, how can I, because he's a very creative guy, uh, Les Paul's kept coming in with broken plastic jack plates, right? Okay. So he goes, man, how can I, what's the solution here? You've got to be better mousetrap. So he came up with an aluminum jack plate. And then he had guys with the straps, the vibrato bars, something that would be breaking off. So he made, I'll make a stainless steel one. Um, it just makes sense. They won't break. And then right. he started advertising that in Guitar Player. And then he started coming out with like brass pick guards, chrome pick guards. And he started doing brass guitar bridges. He thought, you know, when you ring a brass bell, it rings forever. Yeah. So his, his theory was if I do a brass bridge, in theory, it should sustain a lot longer. Um, so he started doing brass strap buttons, bridges, string trees. So he had a line of parts. Um, and then he started making guitar replacement bodies and necks. And his high school friend, who's a great guy, Lynn Ellsworth. Oh, yeah. Really, yeah. Uh, he taught Lynn because Lynn's dad was a uh, was into making cabinets and furniture. And my dad played in a band in high school with Lynn in the surf band for a short time. And so Lynn needed some work. So my dad said, why don't you come over here and I'll show you how to make bodies and necks so they they form boogie bodies together and then eventually lynn moved from southern california up to washington 
Um, so and so now he's, the business is doing really well, and the, the repairs. It got so hectic they they put tape all over the windows of the shop because there's people camped outside begging for guitar repairs, oh, and they couldn't handle it. So they put they, they don't anyone know they're working there because they couldn't. Yeah, you know, just, distracted. Yeah, so they had to tape everything up, and uh, he eventually had 16 employees uh, working for him to keep up because it just they had a tiger by the tail. Yeah. Uh, and then, and then he started building complete guitars um, with the Charvel logo on it uh, for guys like Richie Blackmore and uh, Bobby Cocker from Steppenwolf, uh, Terry Cap from Chicago, um, little old band from Texas, guy named Billy Gibbons. Oh, boy. <laughs> so by this time, it, the company's uh, doing really, really well, but it's just total chaos because they just can't keep up sure. with all the orders. And then Van Halen found out about it. Eddie found out about it. And that was just the thing that just took it from going like this to going like this. Yeah. It was just out of control. Because once that Van Halen record for one came out, and it's got my dad's, you know, Charvel Manufacturing, phone's ringing off the hook now. Because everybody wants a black and white striped uh, Van Halen style guitar. Yeah. And uh, it just went crazy, you know. Well, so everyone talks about the uh, Lynn's involvement with the boogie bodies and things like that, too. So can you share any uh, magic mojo? of that first guitar and maybe debunk any myths, maybe give us some factual information. I mean, it really was not a, a very expensive couple pieces of guitars, body and neck, but share with us your knowledge of what that guitar was. Well, here's what that guitar was. Keep in mind in the seventies, it was, everything was a lot, the cost of living, everything was a lot less money. Of course. Right? So like that body, that body and neck nowadays, if you were to buy it, it wouldn't be 80 bucks or whatever you paid 60 or 50 bucks. I can't remember what you paid for the body. Mm-hmm. My dad gave Ed so many different bodies and stuff because my dad's a real giving guy before Ed even made it. Um, but whatever it was nowadays, something of that equivalent, that neck would probably be maybe 300 maybe. That sounds about right. Yeah, right. And, and maybe a body because it was ash, mm-hmm. uh, northern ash, not swamp ash, northern, which is the head. Northern stuff. ash, that's what it is for sure? Yeah. Well, here's the deal. We had Ed came up in 2007 right when he was getting a divorce with Valerie. Mm-hmm. I think that was in 2007. He told me it was Alder at that point. But he's said in countless interviews that it was uh, Northern Ash. Um, and my dad and Lynn were making bodies out of, you know, mahogany at Northern Ash, Swamp Ash, Alder. So I don't know a thousand percent sure because I don't never, I have never seen that body. Right. Person. He did bring the neck up and left the neck and we made a replica of the neck. So I do know all the specs on the neck. Okay. Uh, but I didn't have the, the actual body. So today's world that to, to do that you probably look at least five six hundred bucks yeah plus to build that guitar yeah uh, I'm, I'm seeing and, people online that do building a lot of i have friends with a lot of different people that you know have a, a, uh, custom necks custom bodies and that's right in the yeah. wheelhouse for sure yeah so that being said i don't think that there's anything super magical about that particular uh it was a piece of northern ash with a, the, a, a slab cut mild bird's eye neck mm-hmm. um so it wasn't like some magical wood. Um, Ed filed the neck down, so the neck's got a, a flat. It's a one and three quarter of the nut, so it's wide and flat. Um, and so it's not that it's a magical piece of wood. Ed's just a really gifted guy. He could He's one of those guys, in my opinion, that could take just about any guitar and make it sound great, you know, because he's got the soul. He's got it in his fingers. Yeah. But as guitarists, we always prefer what we like. Of course. Yeah, your comfort zone. Yeah, I prefer this kind of neck. I prefer this pickup. I prefer this body and bridge. Um, 
But I think part of the reason that guitar sounded good, one, the neck was oiled, so there's no paint on the neck. Yeah. And Ed told me he painted that body with Schwinn lacquer spray can paint. So there's no sealer on it. Um, there's no top coat clear on it. There's hardly any paint. Breathes. And it breathes. It can resonate and breathe. Because basically, if you take, if you get a microscope and look at wood, it's very porous. Like It's like our skin. Mm-hmm. You get a microscope. There's all these kinds of pores. That's how we breathe. Yep. It's the same concept with wood. So a lot of these guitars, they put so much thick paint on it that the body just can't resonate and breathe. It'd be like if someone painted me with thick polyester, I'd die. Right? You put some breathe. wax on you or something. Yeah. Yeah. So I think part of the thing that made that guitar sound good, obviously, it's playing and his amplifier, obviously. But there's hardly any paint on the guitar body. There's no sealer on it, no clear coat. There's no paint on the neck. It's got a vintage-style steel vibrato unit, and it's got a direct mount pickup right to the body. Um, so I think those are some of the things that contribute to the sound of the guitar. And, you know and oh, oh, and I was going to share with you when you get when you cut out. It's you've heard this a thousand times as a guitar player. But you're like, yeah, I went to I went to Guitar Center. I tried ten Les Pauls, and this particular one sounds the best. Well, each piece of wood has a everything has a resonant frequency on the planet. So if you were to tap on it, it has a re- so wood's the same way. Mm-hmm. So it's again, I haven't played as guitar. I'm just speculating at this point, but it's conceivable that piece of wood has had a really good resonant frequency, and it matched up with the neck. And maybe the neck was got a really great resonant frequency, which made that. Everything, all the stars lined up, so to speak. It's very possible. Uh, it's very possible. That's a good way to look at it. I don't think I've ever heard that discussed before, but the possibility is there. And I agree with you 100% on that because I've worked in music retail um, for about 10 years. I've worked in one music store that was 10, five years, another music store five years. And one of my one of my dealers happened to be a Fender dealer. And so I'd be bringing in Stratocasters all day long. And, you know, I'd, I'd, pick, I'd take them out of the box once they're acclimatized. Coming to Canada, I'd get to let them warm up a little bit, you know, and acclimatize to the temperature. And then tune them up, set them up. And they, oh, this is nice, kind of pretty, put it up on the shelf. Work on the next one. Oh, this is kind of pretty, put it up on the shelf. And I'd pick another one. Whoa, what have I got here? You know, it yeah. might it might have been the same blue and I just touched it a minute ago by the same color, but all of a sudden it's magical. And I yes. always find now, see, this is different with you with you and your dad building guitars, but for people picking guitars up off the shelf, um, I I find you will find the best guitar when you're not looking for it. That's what sure. I feel. Yeah, I kind of I kind of agree that sometimes that, that fate just you know, just steps in and you get that magical guitar. Maybe like a good lady too, right? Maybe you know, you when you're not out bar hopping trying to <laughs> just gonna say that. <laughs> Yeah, when you're not looking, something magical that will change your life will enter your life, and and there you go. Um, would your dad? How would your dad say? Like, I I don't ever really look at Eddie as a, a luthier of guitars, you know, a builder. But and I I don't want to get flamed by my Van Halen fans for saying that. But I think he has all these ideas and he can communicate them and he he can orchestrate some of them. But where would your dad say he is as a as a builder? Like, can he can he take something from a whole bunch of parts and make it amazing, or does he need some guidance? Or may, where would you say? I love Eddie. He's a great guitar player. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my dad would tell me he'd come in and he'd put, he nailed that bridge humbucker to the body. Oh, really? He, okay. He took a soldering iron, how he, how he cut that, the pick guard out for that guitar, took an actual soldering iron and melted it and cut it out that way. Okay. So, uh, but he, he, he's, he's, a, he's a songwriter and an innovator, but I don't, I love you, Eddie, if you're listening to this, but I don't know if I'd hire him working in the shop with me. <laughs> the guitars. Sure. That's no disrespect. Cool. No disrespect at all to Eddie. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, but but he got, he made it he made it work. He cobbled it together, and the bottom line is he did get it to work. Because I don't know if you know this, that guitar he had a brass nut on it, mm-hmm. and this is pre-locking strings with stra- staggered keys. He told me when he played that, I believe he's, I can't remember it was a high E to low E. It might have been the high E. The high E while he was playing would pop out of the neck. Okay. So he gra- while he was playing, he grabbed that string, stick it back in the nut in the slot, and then continue playing. Which is, you know, so it's like you're driving this old truck that's, you're trying to, you know, so you got to give the guy credit for working with what he had to work with. I mean, can you imagine playing gigs and the string keeps popping out? You got to stop playing, grab it, continue playing. I know. I know. And yeah. it's, what's so funny is, you know, Fender's made the replica. Uh, and I, I know a lot of people make replicas of the, of the Frankie as well, too. But Fender made the actual, you know, 25,000 US uh, replica. And I played it here in Canada. And I'm not slamming the guitar, but whatsoever. Right. But it, I, if I had that guitar, um, which would be a luxury for me to have, um, I can't afford that guitar. But if I had it, I wouldn't play it much. It would probably be on the wall because it's not a great playing guitar. It's probably a great playing guitar for Eddie Van Halen, um, right. and, it, and it's made now. People will criticize that the stripes are wrong, the reflectors are wrong, and things like that. Obviously, there's some things different from the original, but it is what it is. You can't duplicate it exactly. Uh, uh, but it's not a great playing guitar. And I remember playing it. I was like, I would take the whammy bar and I'd go down about three inches before the bar even, the tremolo even moved. And I felt like I was holding a big Louisville Slugger baseball bat. And it just, it felt like a, I don't know, a bad old car. You know what I mean? But for Eddie, in Eddie Van Halen's hands, it's like butter, right? So certain guitars are for certain people. Sure. And the advantage um, of Ed, because he's playing so much, when you play guitar and practice that many hours, mm-hmm. and you're playing nightclub night after night after night, you get to a point where you get whatever level of guitar player you are, right? You get the you're the best of that level. So if, if a guitar player was, I'm not saying Eddie's not obviously, but if it's, if it's a normal human being, let's say if you're at a level seven guitar playing, mm-hmm. if you're playing that much playing nightclubs, you get, you know, you're a ten on your level. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think it's a point where you can pretty much it's about grab anything because you're playing all the time. Yeah, and, and you get used to it. That, that's a weird phenomena. Um, when we build guitars. Sometimes you get that the guy's actually got a guitar. The quality is not as good, mm-hmm. but he's played the guitar for thirty years. For thirty years, he's so used to it that when he does get something better, he's they sometimes they go back to what they had because it's just it's like an old cowboy boot. That's right. You know? it fits so well, and they've played it for so many years. It's an extension of their body. And then you give them something like, dude, this has got this guitar stays in tune better. It sounds better. Blah 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 blah. But they still sometimes they'll go back to the old one because it's just a, they just know it that well. Yeah, that's they know right. Every single thing that guitar is going to do. That's like the story I shared with you off the air, and I've shared this a couple times to some of our, our regular viewers as well too. I went back to an old guitar, and I shouldn't say old, but we're talking 1991. That's old enough. Uh, in right. our in our day and age, I went back to a Yamaha Pacifica. That was a very special guitar for me for for a, a period of time. And then I went back to it, and even though there's some things I don't like about it, it's got a licensed Floyd. Uh, it's kind of a weird, very weird Floyd. Um, but the guitar has been very, very special to me again because it was ahead of its time. You know, a Warmoth neck back in the day, a big jumbo frets. Like, it like a, it's a shredder's dream, a cutaway that you can reach with your eyes closed and, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. So I know what you're saying when you go back sometimes to these old things, older, and this is certainly not vintage, but something that was working so well back then. And will make you appreciate the stuff that's coming out today more so because it's it's a different way of thinking. A lot of things today are mass produced, 
You know, um, right. I, there's, there's so many, but it is a good time to be a guitar player. And that's the bottom line of this. We can choose yes. from just about anything affordably. And then it's all a cart now. What do we want? There's really no options that we can't put into a guitar anymore. You want to light up and blink and make toast? We can do it. I know. Yeah, it's, 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 almost, it's almost too many options. I know. There's almost too much stuff out there. Yeah. You know. You but, might. Uh, I mean, uh, look at Steve Ray Vaughan's guitar. Remember his his Strat, the, mm-hmm. the SRV Strat. I mean, that's a perfect example of that guitar. That guitar is an extension. Was an extension of, of his of him. You know. Exactly, uh, and pretty basic. You know, a pretty basic uh, guitar. Nothing fancy. Even his effects and in, inline of guitar to amplifier. Amplifier is pretty basic. You know, Steve Ray Vaughan was never in that era of the fridge rack and stuff like that. And he could he could plug into a pig nose and sound right. amazing. Yes. Yeah, I, I love Stu Rayvon's playing, by the way, too. I, me too. Me too. I got obsessed with him for a brief little period of time. And what got me obsessed with him is one time jamming at band practice, and I broke a string on one of my Floyd Rose guitars, and it broke so bad that I couldn't even repair it. You know, you can usually repair one, but it broke off. I'm like, oh, man. And my drummer had a Japanese Squire Strat, which actually was a really good guitar, the Japanese Squire. Um, he goes, you can use this one for now. And I just wanted to try some blues, whatever. And I was kind of winging some Steve Ray Vaughan. And I was like, I got to go look up this Steve Ray Vaughan guy and learn more about him. And I've just become obsessed with him. Yeah. I, uh, that, the, the two parallels, obviously, they're opposite players, Stevie and Eddie. Yeah. The thing I like about both their playing styles, they're so aggressive and so passionate. I love guitar players. They just, just, just get it all out. You know what I mean? It's, That's what I've said about Eddie many times in the show. I look at him as... It's like this Ferrari driver, uh, Le Mans driver, you know, driving at the at the brisk uh, brink of blowing out the engine and crashing into the wall. Where you or I or maybe the next guy get in that same car, we're probably going to kill ourselves as soon as we pop the clutch, you know. Right. <laughs> but Eddie gets in there and almost blows everything up, but maintains control to the end. That's what it's like with his guitars. Like uh, you know, several all these people that you know, growing up through the '70s and '80s, well, especially in the '70s, like the Ted Nugents and people like that on the bill with Van Halen. Hey, Zeke or whoever gets the tech is at the time um um can i use can i try eddie's rig or whatever and so they plug in the feedback they can't control it whoa 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 and they're kind of bummed because they look like an idiot but it takes a lot of control controlling that feedback and knowing how to where to stand yes yeah there's an art art, total art to that it it is yeah especially the volumes that ed Ed van halen plays because it's not just the amplifiers they're they're running it through like a hundred thousand watt pa system to boot yes it's more than just when some guys say loud, a 412 cabinet in your 100 watt EVH in the background, that's loud, mm-hmm. but that's not the kind of decibels and volume that Van Halen plays on stage with PA of that, of that magnitude. That's right. I know. It's just, it's absolutely insane. Yeah. It's a whole different loudness than a guy playing a nightclub with a 100 watt head. It's a whole different deal. I, that's true. But can you imagine, though, too, back in, back in those days, in the 70s, you know, obviously this is back in your dad's era as well, too, you know, with all these stars coming around. Can you imagine being in those clubs when the Van Halens of the world were there and, uh, you know, they don't have attenuators and things like that to bring the volume down. You know, Eddie would take his amp and turn it around backward just to try to keep some of the volume off there and kicked out, kicked out of uh, club after club after club. Like, look, man, you're just playing too loud. Yeah. Yeah. I know. That would be nice. My... It, it, when my dad was gigging, it was he, there was a, he knew a good friend who was an absolute genius. He's no longer here. His name's Bob Lulai. He was modifying Marshalls and amps. Probably one of the very first guys to do it. He got out of it because he started designing uh, satellites for Sony for uh, up in space. He's wow! Like, this guitar stuff's child. Was, the guy was a genius. Mm-hmm. And he would take my dad's Showmans and take the transformers and add an extra couple preamp tubes. And they're like 187 watt heads. And my dad had the same problem as. 
you play these places. So Bob, who's electronic genius, goes, I'll get you a Variac. And he, my, so my dad started using the Variac to help tame the volume of these of these clubs. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, my dad shared that Variac with Ed. So here's something that you can use for your marshals. Is that that's true? Is that true? Yeah, true story. Yeah, that is very cool. That is very very cool because we've all we know all know the story. But I, it's just so nice to kind of have different sources give us some factual information. So that is darn cool. So thank, yeah, thank and, you. For- yeah, my dad's sure that other interviews. My dad he can't take credit for it because it was Bob Lulai that showed my dad. There you go. <laughs> my, dad just, my dad just passed it on, you know, to other people as well. Just like Eddie was tapping, right? I mean, Eddie will probably tell you what came from here. It came from here. It came from here. It's certainly not the that's certainly not the first, but it's people who take that and run with it and do sure. something really, really good. And and then again, pass the torch to the next generation, which has been done. Things that your dad has done, done, and I'm sure sometimes it might irk him. You know, some of his building ideas and and conceptions and things like that. People take that and run with it. That's just a part of the business, but. Yeah. Uh, flattery is, uh, I mean, you know, imitation and and you know, competition and things like that as well too is quite flattering as well too. Yeah, it. Uh, my dad's had that happen on several occasions. He finally, when he does any prototype stuff now, he has to hide it. Yeah. Um, I won't name the fellow's name, but this is in the seventies. Again, there's no aftermarket parts. The stuff doesn't exist. My dad uh, milled out a telly bridge, right? Mm-hmm. But he milled a humbucker slotted, which doesn't sound like anything now because there are a dime a dozen. But he had that prototype on his bench. And one of these other uh, scumbags came to the shop, saw it, uh, and four weeks later, he sees his thing by this guy in the magazine. Before you your know? dad even got it out. Yeah, before he even got it out, because he's overwhelmed. They didn't have time to get it out. So you do get a lot of that if you have something uh, unique like that. Uh, my advice is put it in hiding until either you can patent it, copyright it, trademark, whatever, or at least blast it to the market first. You're the first guy. Yeah, yeah, trust I mean, no one, man. Yeah, obviously now a humbucker and a telly plate's patent, it's, it's been done a thousand times, but, but in that, that era, it didn't exist. Your dad invented that. That's really cool. Yeah, he just, because he's a guitar player, he's like, how do I get, how do I get this to do this and that, you know, so. Yeah. That's fantastic. I'm going to jump over to the chat for a second. I'm not going to be able to say hi to everybody because we've got a million people in here, but I'm just going to kind of mention their names and say hi. Then I know they're uh, very happy to have you here. Uh, Quentin James, one of our regulars, he's a great guitar, uh, great guitarist and a great fan of all this kind of factual information. So he's, I'm sure he'll appreciate that. Um, uh, Michael is here. Thomas Maynard is here. My beautiful nocturnal butterfly is here. Eamon Wise, Carlos Santan, fellow Canadian friend, Sean Close, Rhonda Kennington. Uh, let me see here. Uh, Monica here from Chico, she says. Uh, Paul Perkins. One. Are oh, you know Monica? Yeah. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for nice. Or, or, or uh, Rhonda. I mean, sorry. Yeah. Uh, or Monica. Right. Yeah. Uh, Paul Perkins. One of my favorite guitars in 1992. Uh, Charvel Predator always stays in tune. Incredibly dependable. Uh, Jeff Bruce. Eamon Wise. We're still getting smoked down here in San Jose from the fires. Apparently, it's visible in New York City, as well. Wow. wow. Uh, Gary Holt is here. My good buddy. Uh, let me see here. Um, Carlos saying he says he's not ready, but he, we should be ready to leave our homes at a moment's notice. I need to get better prepared. We all do. And that's something I, I, we say it and we just say it and I say it and we just don't do it, but we all need to practice what we preach. Um, yes. John Kerry says live from Ingve Momstein's house. Okay. Very cool. Um, cool. Uh, Michael says in the mountains here, BC, we had so much fire activity over the summer instead of rainfall, ash falling on the sky for days. Cannot imagine what they've been going through. Can you imagine that? Yeah, you don't get rain; you just have ash. That's yes. like after the volcano eruptions and things like that too. You see that for in for for months and crazy. 
Um, yeah, and Eamon says, smoke is no big deal compared to what's happened for sure. Um, and Quentin says, a long drought and those winds blow the embers for miles. And I think that's the case. There was a considerable drought too in the area, right? Yes. We didn't have a, the last rain they said was in May. Yeah. Yeah. That's, so, that's nuts. That is really nuts. Uh, yeah. So. All, all of California though is in a drought, Southern and Northern. They, they have, we haven't had any good rains. Can you share with us, like I'm considering myself um, ignorant to the fact, how did the fire start? They're calling it campfire, but uh, what, what was the cause of the, the main fires? Here's the rumor around the campfire. Uh, they're saying that PG&E, uh, I can't pronounce the name of the oh, town. Oh, company, a company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They said that, I guess PG&E had a transformer or something going out. I don't know this 100% factual, but this is what I've heard. And it, it caused a fire and the winds just took it, just kept spreading and spreading. That's what I've heard. Okay, now you're now you're onto something because I remember hearing a company's name and that sounds somewhat right. And they're saying if we're found liable, okay, now we'll we'll invest we'll we'll start a case here. But they're saying if we're found liable, they're not saying that they are. But right. yeah, that's right. Okay, thank you for sharing that. And then so that was the cause, and it, I mean it's not necessarily necessarily the cause, but something started from here and it just spread like obviously I don't use the term wildfire, but it spread literally across the the country. Yeah, that's what I've heard thus far. Okay. Don't know if that's one hundred percent correct, but that's where everyone's been telling me. So, if if that's the case, we'll just say a big if, and it's hypothetical at this point. Um, that's going to be some uh, that would bankrupt that company. I don't care how big your corporation is. Yeah, that's yeah, totally. Oh boy, they're, I don't want to be uh, waiting for my paycheck if I'm working for that company. I know they're going to have some serious problems. Yeah, and you know, if it happened, I mean, it's it could be an act, could have been a honestly accident, but man, oh man, you know, that's some uh, damaged control on that one. Yeah, here's another thing I'll share with you, which, in my again, my opinion. Yep. And I don't have any say, but why don't they put the power lines under the ground? Yeah. Why do they have this stuff in the air? Um, you know, that's yeah. what I would have done. I don't know. I don't have an electric uh, engineering degree. I, I'm assuming it can be done. You know, I know. I know here in Canada, with, when it comes to cable TV and things like that, t- totally different. But they're starting to bury things here in, in the ground as opposed to aerial. Now, we're not talking voltage here, high voltage. But I can't. I can't see why that couldn't be done either. Yeah, that's something I would. Look yeah, into. yeah. So if, if something explodes, shorts out, causes a combustion, it's underground. Yeah. Probably will extinguish itself with the water tables yes. and things like that. You don't have the wind to deal with, and you don't have a bunch of pine trees. And oak yeah, trees. the wind is yeah. the biggest thing. If something's just on fire, you can get there with a you know a garden hose practically and extinguish it. But when those, when those winds come in, I'll share. I'll share a, a story that's. It's not a funny story. I mean, it's funny because it's, it doesn't relate to what happened to everyone in California, but how wind and fire can cause problems. When I was a kid, you know, you talked about your dad building model planes. Well, I was really into model rockets, those ones that you'd launch them up into the air. They go really, really high yes. in the air, come down with a parachute, whatever. Yes. So I'm launching, yep. a, I'm launching a rocket on a windy day, and I lived on a farm, and across the road from us was my uncle's wheat field. This is a very, very windy day. Um, it's like in August. The wheat is dry. We've had a drought for a good long time at this point. I launch my rocket up, goes up, and it's supposed to go up to a several thousand feet, pops off the nose cone, and a parachute comes out, and you go catch your rocket. Well, this was a dud engine, and it went up, and it didn't even have the ejection charge. It come back down, firing all the way down, still full, full robust engine, poof, into the ground. I saw a puff of smoke come up. I looked away for a second, and I looked back, and there's a, fl- a fireball 
So I run to the house to go get a pail of water and I come back out and literally getting outside from a couple hundred feet away, you could feel fireballs. The the fire just went across the whole thing. And in about 15 to 20 minutes, maybe half an hour, burnt my uncle's wheat field down to the ground. Wow. Yeah. And uh, so that was, so what I had to do is I had to try to go get that rocket real quick. So I wasn't caught. Like, I, you know what I mean? <laughs> wasn't, it wasn't a good day for me, you know? I <laughs> yeah, that was, that was awkward. So, I mean, at least, you know, th- things like that happen. Uh, let's right. continue down the chat for a quick second. And as we get uh, a little further here too, I want to start talking about the, um, uh, the, the GoFundMe campaign, which is great. And you can tell people, you know, um, why you're doing that and things like that as well too. And I think we kind of touched base on it already. The fact that, yeah, it's the fact that, you know, you're, you're tied up with insurances for God forbid, it could be f- almost forever. And you guys have a family, uh, a fairly large family. You guys have to survive. So we'll talk about all that in a minute too. Um, even wise firefighters are superheroes. I agree with that a hundred percent. You know, sometimes you see these sports celebrities getting these multi-million dollar contracts per year. I'd really like to see firefighters paid the most we can possibly throw at them. Doctors and, and nurses and, you know, everything as well too. Police officers, first yes. responders. Yep. Uh, let me see here. Uh, Scott F is here. Drive a fast sports car. Yeah. Um, you know, if yeah, you, you, you might not be able to escape a fire in a fast for, sports car if you're, uh, you're in gridlock. Uh, mm-hmm. Let me see here. Um, so yeah, John Kerry's asking, do you have insurance for this? But obviously, yeah, we, everyone has insurance, but it's the, it's the dealing with it. It's the paperwork that is just the pain. And actually I'm going to, just because this reminded me of it, insurance, you talked about taking pictures. Um, my insurance agent here one time told me, I think this is a good tip for people, especially for the guitar players out there, musicians. Sometimes video is good too. So walk yes. through like here, my little, my little studio here, take a video camera. And even if you want to talk, say, okay, over here, I'm looking at an EVH stripe guitar and blah, blah, blah. And then zoom in on it, whatever, because um, video can add a lot of dimension to things as well too. Yeah, I agree hundred percent. Yep. Great idea. But you, you nailed it when you said put it on a cloud storage, Google drive, Dropbox somewhere, because you lose your hard drive at home while you serve no purpose taking those pictures. Yep. Yeah. Um, I got a text message saying, tell uh, Mike chips says hi. Oh, how you doing chips? <laughs> All right. He, he uh, was in the fire too. He lives about, uh, oh, I think about a mile or two from my house. So he was, he oh. lost all his stuff too. So. Oh no. Well, I'm so very sorry to hear that. Um, we've got someone else big here in the, um, in the guitar community saying hi to you, Robert Baker. Do you follow Robert Baker on the internet? Uh, he's the, the guitar, uh, real long hair, real super, yeah, super long. Yeah, I, he, as a matter of fact, Pete Thorne, um, a good friend of mine sent our thing to Pete Thorne, who's a great guitar player as yeah, well. I've yeah. met Pete, a great guy. Pete, uh, posted it on his social media. And then I guess from that, Robert Baker, um, did a video. So thank you, Robert Baker. Nice to meet you. Awesome. Thorn as well. Yeah, Pete. Pete's great. I did see that. I saw that he did uh, some some awareness for you guys, which is great. Yeah, Pete's a Pete's a fellow Canadian as well too. I know he's obviously a family in Canada now. I think he's in the state somewhere, but uh, okay. he's a good dude. Um, Joe Savage says hi, Michael. Hope all is well. Thank um, you. Let me see here. Just gonna get some other names I may have not mentioned. Uh, Don Shepard is here, another guitar player. Um, let me see here. Just want to make sure I'm crediting all these people that take their uh, time out to come and watch. It's great. Tactical six string is here as well too. Uh, let me see your Scott F twenty four hour fire watches. Yeah, almost in communities like that where there's such a risk. You know, I imagine it's they probably put bands like on on campfires or barbecuing and things like that. And and certain times of the year, do they do that? Uh, I know they have certain times of the year you can get a permit. Oh, you permit your leaves, for example. Yep. Um, as far as the camping, I don't know because I'm so busy working all the time. I don't get to camp. Yeah, I bet. I'll bet. Yeah. 
and living there is like just living there is camping as well. You know, because we're it's like why camp? I already have a forest back there's a backyard. Meeting. So I don't know to answer the question. I'm, I'm sure there are. Yeah. I, I think you're right enough because I remember it's it's not like you, you almost have to apply to be able to. It's like they don't ban you. You have to apply to be able to do it. And they even right. started doing that here in Canada, which we never really have a problem, at least in, in Ontario, Canada, of these fires uh, like that. But they started to make it safer for backyard fires because uh, a lot of us in, in Canada, some of us can be rednecks. And, and you know, I'm not making fun of rednecks, but you know, when I say, here's a fire, um, the next guy wants to trump me and say, no, 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 this is a fire. You know what I mean? So they say, okay, you have to have a, a, a like kind of a, a cover on the the fire pits, and they're really making strong laws. And I think it's for the better because who wants to, th- you know, when I'm throwing in two logs, uh, that's my fire. Next guy throws in two picnic tables, and and a, you know, it's just crazy, right? So common sense. Yes, common sense. Yeah. Uh, let me see here. I'm going to continue on just a little bit more. Um, well, I'll highlight right here where we left off. So tell us a little bit about the, um, you kind of alluded to the uh, GoFundMe campaign. It's around yes. $45,000, $46,000. Um, tell people when that got started, and, and I, we do have links to it, so people can find that in our description. But tell us what you're kind of hoping with the, the campaign, and maybe kind of give us um, short-term, long-term plans. Like, did your dad ever have that feeling in his gut, like, you know what, I've had a great career, I've got a great family, this, maybe it's time to quit? Or does he want to just roll back and get in there again and kind of share the the direction you're going? Well, my dad, um, thank God he's in good physical shape. He mm-hmm. works out every day, eats a lot of organic foods, uh, and he's very well versed with nutrition. So um, he's so used to working. We get It's just a habit. You get ingrained in doing something that he's the kind of guy that just, he can't sit home. He'll, he'll go nuts. Um, so he has to be constantly tinkering and making things. Mm-hmm. He's he's one of those kind of guys. Not because he's my dad, but he's very gifted. He can. You tell him to bake a house, he can build a house. You tell him to build a hot rod car, he can do it. Build a motorcycle, uh, you know, whatever. So he likes to make and create things because when you make something that's really cool, it's it's a great feeling. It's, it's a feeling of satisfaction. Mm-hmm. And I this is all I know. I've grown up doing this stuff my whole life, so it's in my blood. It's kind of like being in the mafia. Once you get in, you can't you can't get out of it. So yeah, our plan, and I don't want to. I absolutely love doing it. I always share with my friends. How do you know what you like doing in life? How do you know if you're really passionate about it? And the answer, in my opinion, is this: If I gave you you know five hundred million or all the money on the planet, would you still come back and do your job? Whether it's no disrespect to anyone, but if it's a post office or if you're working as an attorney or doctor, if you have all the money on the planet, would you come back the next day and do that work? If you say no, then you're probably not too passionate about it. Yeah. So the way I, the way I know that I'm on the right track is if you gave me all that money, I'd still come back and build cool guitars and I'd still write songs and play music because I love doing it. Sure. We never did this. We never got into this business for the money. Both my father and I got into it because we absolutely love it. It's just, we think it's super cool. Um, so we never did it. And I, and even to this day, I don't do. I don't go out to try to do business. Going, hey, how can I make billions of dollars? The first thing is, do I love doing it? Yeah. Um, that's. So to answer your question, our goal is, is once we get the money, some money from the GoFundMe, which is doing extremely well. I didn't think it'd take off this to this magnitude this quick. I think it's been up eight days, seven to eight days, something like that. So what we're going to try to do is our first objective. Is we got to get a stable place to live, because right now we're moving around from place to place. 
yeah, just so people, that's, I'm going to interrupt you just for a quick second. Because where you are right now, it's not people are like that's not where you live. You're luxury of being able to stay somewhere right now. That's not where you live right now. Yeah, I'm I'm uh, I'm in Southern California. My parents are up in Northern California. Right. Um, the only reason I'm down here is because Chico's the next town, and it's got fifty thousand. It's a small town, and there's fifty thousand extra people there now. Mm-hmm. So, and the firefighters, rightfully so, get carte blanche, so they get to get all the hotel. They hit, I think they set up. It might have been three hundred or three thousand. I can't remember the exact number of firefighters. So the firefighters took all the places. So there's there's no place to stay. So thank God my friend who's a real estate agent. He said, I've got a place for two nights, but they're going to rent it out. And so we have to leave Saturday. He's like, listen, if you want, you can go to Southern California with me and we can stay at my brother's house. And I'm like, sounds good to me because I've got no other, where else am I going to go? Sounds like it sounds good to me, I guess. Yeah. And the fact that the smoke, the air quality in Chico right now is horrendously bad. Uh, And it's actually cold because the smoke is blocking the sun. Yeah, it would be. It's cold. The, the air quality is horrible and the traffic, I was talking to a good friend of mine, he's all just five, six miles from the airport uh, to the Harley Davidson shop, he's in the Harleys. He said it took him 45 minutes, you know, Jeez. which is because all the, the influx of all the, the people. Yeah. So my friend said, if you want to go to Southern California, it's like, it's a no brainer. You know, let's go. So. I can imagine the respiratory problems people would be facing too. Like, I mean, you, like you don't take it, uh, you know, you take it for granted. You go outside and you inhale some of this stuff. And then if, especially if people are commuting to work or, you know, or public transit, if there's such thing right now, you know, horrible. Well, there's a Norris. I think it's pronounced Norris. I could be incorrect. I believe it's Norris. There's a Norris virus going around Chico right now. Um, so that's another, another thing. I thought, well, all these situations are probably a good idea. And I have no place to live, so let's... So we're, we're down here and my parents are still up in, uh, they're in Chico right now. Well, that's good that you guys have got some safe places. And, and, uh, my beautiful, uh, nocturnal butterfly here says too, it must be horrendous for the people that already had breathing problems, you know, respiratory yes. problems. Imagine that, right? Yeah. yeah. People have asthma, oh. uh, and, and maybe the elderly, thank God I don't have any asthma or any problems like that, but yeah, it's definitely, I'll, t- I'll tell you the weird part about it. This is, I, I don't, I'm not a doctor. It doesn't make any sense, but my, uh, the guy, my best friend that I went down here with, he's, he's a cigarette smoker. I don't smoke cigarettes, but he does. And when we were out in Chico, the air was driving him crazy. I'm thinking to myself, it's not bothering me. I'm not coughing or anything. But and, you're a smoker. Wait, wait, yeah. I, I don't smoke. I'm like, wait a minute. Do you smoke cigarettes? And the air is affecting you, which you wouldn't think that would be the case. Right. And I wonder why it, did he, did he allude to why it was? No, he just had like an itchy cough. He doesn't know why he's like, it just bothers me. And it bothers me in the fact that I just don't like the smell of it. Yeah. Uh, I didn't feel any, I didn't feel anything in my lungs where he was like, uh, you know, I was like, wow, you smoke cigarettes. You think you'd be like semi immune to it. That's right. Yeah. Kind of in touch. Yeah. Not, not the case. Yeah. Before we wrap up here in a couple of minutes, I want to, I want to kind of just go off in another direction as well too. So I hadn't heard any of your music. I, I'm, I'm not going to lie and say, Oh yeah, I've been a big fan. I, I didn't know anything about your music until, you know, get, having you here for the interview. So, so two blessings come out of this. Number one, I get to speak to you, which is a blessing. Um, and number two, I got to hear some new music and I always love to discover new music as we all do. And I, I, I'm not going to lie. I'm not. And I've told you this off the air, like your music is kind of hard country rock, hard country slash rock. And I don't like particular most particular country music, but I gravitated to it right away. Number one, I was kind of spoiled with the guitar choices that you're using. Um, of course, I mean a particular guitar company that we we all know, the the Wayne Guitar Company. 
but tell us a little bit about your your musical career. So, like you 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 started earlier talking about these air guitars with you know little needles and strings and that kind of shoelaces for a guitar strap. How did you make that transition to that to kind of like a country rock star? Well, I um, right around twelve, I started off playing the drums for a real brief, brief, small, small stint. Uh, my dad built guitars for a guy named Paul Gilbert, who's a shred guitar player. Yeah, I've heard of him. <laughs> okay. And um, he built a couple purple looking with Taylor flat mounts, one yeah. humbuckers. So since I was only 12 years old, I couldn't go to nightclubs, obviously. But Paul just graduated GIT, and he had a band called Racer X, which at that time was a three-piece with no vocals. Yep. So he played a down in Southern California. Um, my dad did a lot of guitar repairs and music. Music store. I can't remember the name of the music store, but Paul did a clinic, and I was, you know, twelve. And I went to see this clinic, and the, you know, the, he just totally blew me away. Dude, it was like, God, this guy's, he is. And, and, and during the breaks, um, he would people would say, Hey, can you play this and play that? And he'd play Van Halen stuff. He'd play Ian Bay. So this guy can play anything. Then he'd get back to the insane Racer X, and the bass player was just in, he was from GIT. And the, the drummer name was MIT. So they're all three. And they're all like eighteen. Yeah, and they're insanely good. <laughs> uh, but what really sold me is when after the thing, after they stopped playing, all the girls went to the guitar player, who was Paul Gilbert. Yep, and I'm, I'm playing guitar. <laughs> That's exactly it. So I put the drumsticks down, and um, I wish knowing what I know now, because when you're in your 12, you don't have a lot of obligations when you're that age bracket. Right? A lot of free time. Mm-hmm. I, I would have spent more time playing. But I had other interests. I was interested in making, you know, building cool hot rods and painting other things. My brothers, I have two twin brothers who can play circles around me. They um, spent a lot of time in those years practicing and playing. So make a long story short, I I took uh, a lessons from a guy, I never forget his name, Colgan Bryant, which is an incredible guitar player. And I was 12 or 13, and the first song he taught me is Ain't Talking About Love. Oh, right and on. I, yeah, but at the time I could barely play it. You know, when you're first playing, you can barely hit the chords. Yeah, I can play an E chord. I think I know like three chords. Like I can barely play. And, he, and ain't talking about love it. And that, and that when you're at that level is like crazy advanced. Sure. I got discouraged and quit. Uh, I, this is insanity. I can't play this. And he showed me Black Dog. It was that was that one song. Okay. Same deal. You just you barely play a chord. So I just started noodling on my own, and um, I started. I got in a couple little garage bands. And I just started figuring out. My dad showed me some things. Not a lot. I mainly learned a lot, mostly from my dad through osmosis. Because every time he'd set up a guitar, he'd play all his riffs. Okay. I just picked those up. And he didn't really show I just, you know, from here to a thousand sure, times. Sure. So then I, I played a little bit in bands in Southern California. And then um, I moved up to Northern California, played a little bit in bands. But I had so much problem playing in bands because I'm, I'm a perfectionist. Uh, it was so hard getting uh, musicians that would show up on time, learn the material, uh, that they, they were sober, uh, didn't have, you know, the wife telling them they can't play. So eventually in my early twenties, I just said, you know, I'm done with this. I'm just, uh, it's so frustrating. I want to play so bad, but I just, I got to deal with all this drama. Mm-hmm. And you know, right. When you get the band sounded really good after six months of practicing, someone quits. Yep. And then you got to start all over again. And, by, and now like they're sick of it. Yeah, and the bass player gets sick of playing this song, so he quits. I mean, it's just a, it's a vicious cycle. It's hard to get off the ground with like-minded people that are cool to work with. Mm-hmm. So then I picked it up. I I, I want to play so bad. So in my thirties, I want to play. I'll do a one-man band because we I saw we built guitars for Eddie Ojeda from Twisted Sister. Yeah, we actually had a signature model. And I was talking to him. He's like, dude. He's all when I'm not playing with Twisted Sister because he lives in the New York area. 
He's like, I've got a one-man act. And he's actually a good singer. He's a good, got a good voice. I didn't know that. Like, yeah, all people don't know that. He's a good singer. Um, so he would have backing tracks and play the guitar and sing to get gigs, keep his chops up when he's off the road. And he's all, he told me, so you should do that. So I, I thought, cool, I'll do that. And I did start doing that. I started doing one man with a bass and drums. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's it's cool, but it's just nothing like a real band. Sure, yeah, you don't get to feed off of one another either. Yeah, you just want the energy of the real band. Um, and then the, we had another artist, a guy named Kurt Mitchell, who did the Learn to Burn. Yeah, and did the Van Halen uh, stuff too. Yeah, yeah, and I was a big fan of his because like, here's a guy that knows how to sound like Van Halen. Yeah. He's the amp. So I got in contact with him and we became friends and I did some guitar work for him and I said, can you make me these backing tracks for my one man band, which, which were all cover songs. Mm-hmm. And halfway through it, I said, hey, because I got sick of playing the cover songs. I've written about 200 songs. I said, listen, we, could we do some of my original songs? And he goes, yeah. And he got his bass player, who what you've heard play on the tracks, who's mm-hmm. a monster, named Danny Greenberg. Okay. And Kurt had a band called Bangalore Choir, which they opened up for Ozzy and uh, Jake Lee had a band called Badlands. Yeah. Opened up for George Lynch, so they're all pro guys. So um, he recorded the bass, and then Kurt. I went to Kurt's house, and Kurt engineered it and produced it. And we just did it. We we put it together really, really quick because I only had a couple days to get up there. And and I was intimidated. Kurt's a super nice guy, but he's such a great guitar player. I'm going, dude. I got to play in front of you. Yeah, it's it's tough. It was intimidating, but he's he's very nice. And uh, so, make a long story short, we 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 did the, the the demo there. And I just never had time to finish the rest of the materials because life got in the way. Yeah, it happens. And the reason why I did country is because I don't have a big vocal range. I can't sing the, the stuff that I, you know, the heavy metal stuff. And I can't play it on the guitar and sing at the same time. Okay, coordination thing. Yeah. And so I thought maybe I just work with what you got. You know, what can yeah. like, I, I read Steve, I had an interview along, a while back on YouTube somewhere. He's all, just focus on the things that you excel at. Don't focus on stuff that you don't excel at. Well, I'm never going to have a full, you know, I'm never seeing like, uh, you know, Robert Plant. I just can't sing that high mm-hmm. stuff. So I thought I could do country. Um, but I grew up on Van Halen, ZZ Top, ACDC, Rat. So I thought, how can I do it where I actually like it? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? So if you listen to the, some of those tracks without the vocal on them, they kind of they sound Van Halen-esque, ZZ Top-esque, ACDC flavor. That's why I think I liked it because that's, you, that's exactly why <laughs> you drew me in. And we've just got your link as well too. Nocturnal shared your link. So, uh, microsoftl.com. So I really encourage you to check it out. And there's also some good interviews with you as well too. And I'm not sure who the lady was that was interviewing you, but you could tell she was very happy to interview you as well too. <laughs> she was nonstop smiling throughout the whole interview, which was pretty cool. Right. Right. Yeah. That's so awesome. That's basically how that, that came about was, um, you know, and I still want. I still have a ton of songs I want to record, but I, life got so busy with Wayne guitars, and then I, I sent all the stuff out to a lot of record companies in Nashville, and they said that you have to be. We don't accept unsolicited material. You have to have a publishing company. So yeah. the, the other bass player I was talking with, who was on tour with Chris Holmes and Molly Crew, said, "Dude, you got to call ASCAP." So I was I was naive. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. So I set up a publishing company, and then we. We called back and we resent everything out. I still got half of them back. They never listened to it. Oh, 
I know it's such a vicious circle. You know, it is. And the people that are just trying so hard to get their name out there. I mean, the internet now is helping us a little bit, but I, I do agree with you. They, they get inundated with all these submissions and stuff like that. But as long as you're having fun with it and you're yes. able to um, play guitar and sing, which is good because you do, you have a, you do have a great voice. I mean, I think you sold, you sold you, I know you don't necessarily don't have the range that you're saying, but what you right. do, you focus on what you got and it sounds really good. Like really Thank good. You. Thank you. I appreciate the compliment. No, it's good. I, I do dig it a lot, and it's nice because I think I I need that little 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 couple ingredients of some Van Halen. You know, a little bit like you say, ZZ Top, that boogie, and Van Halen and ZZ Top are more alike than a lot of people get to say. I mean, I, I, I agree a thousand percent. Yeah. yeah. That swing, that shuffle, that boogie—I mean, they covered so much uh, ZZ Top back in the days, in the club days, anyway. So that obviously that DNA rubs off on Van Halen as well, too. Just like watching your dad do the setups, that rubbed off, right? It's second nature to you. Yes, definitely. Yeah, and I'm a huge Chuck Berry fan, which Chuck Berry is like the godfather of rock and roll for guitar. I mean, yeah, there's guys that technically technically can play, you know, faster and a lot better, but he's mm -hmm. like. He's um, he just kind of laid it like that one riff he does the, the B string and the the E he bends the G up. Yep. That that riff's been used and you know Eddie's used it. Warren Mar everybody's used that. I, I you know so like he's kind of he's really laid the foundation. Um, in my opinion, uh, it's, you know it's a little rough. The playing's rough. And it's not as polished as today's players, but I agreed. Know, yeah. But I read somewhere that ACDC were huge fans of Chuck Berry. I I I would believe it. I would have to believe it. I'll, I'll share a story with you. I had um, where a lot of my musical influence come from as a kid. I had um, two older sisters, they're twin sisters, and they both dated musicians all the time and eventually married them and things like that as well, too. So guitar players and bass players in the family. So I always had a good instructor around. And the one boyfriend that one of my sisters had this one time, he would really bum me out because I'm just starting to find myself as a guitar player. I'm about 16, 18 years old. And I, we used to practice in my dad's hangar for the airplane, so big big open room with lots of reverb. And I'm sitting there playing, and my bandmates are impressed with me. And then here comes uh, sister's boyfriend. Um, he's from Greece, just a shredder you know, from overseas. And he um, he has his Les Paul, which is really cool, like a, a 70s Les Paul. And he goes, hey, he goes, can I plug in for a second? And so he plugs in and just he, he just annihilated, annihilated me. And my bandmates are like, oh, this guy's amazing, right? And then, so after I got my ego kind of handed back to me, um, he says, I'm going to teach you some things. And he says, I'm going to teach you some riffs and cliches. And that's all it was. And that, that's something probably not a lot of people say anymore is cliches. As you know, like the early bird gets a worm is a cliche. Well, there's cliches on guitar. That Chuck Berry riff that you just mentioned is a cliche. And we went through about six cliches. Um, you know, uh, things like that. A couple Jimmy Page things. Really, really simple Jimmy Page things. Uh, maybe even a ZZ Top one. I'm trying to think who else, but there is no more than six. And taking those things right there took me to another level almost by the next weekend. That's cool, man. Yeah. yeah. Cliches, things that, you know, we hear them all the time, but and you think, okay, that guy's great. No, well, he got it from him. He got it from him. He got it from him. He got it from her. Chuck Berry did it. You know what I mean? Yeah, totally. Yeah. <laughs> Listen, we are at the 10.30 mark here of Eastern Standard Time. I just want to say a couple things here. Number one, I hope this uh, campaign goes great for you guys. I'm sure it will. The link is in the description down below. Um, maybe I'll do a follow-up with you um, maybe in the spring and see where you guys are. Please uh, please also um, give a, a warm uh, thank you to your dad for what he's done. And, and you as well, too. You're part of the business as well, too. But, I mean, I'm going to share a little bit towards your dad. Um, what he's done for the guitar community worldwide, it would be a different place uh, without him. I've said that a lot about Eddie Van Halen. The world would be a different place without Eddie Van Halen. The world sure. would also be a very different place without your dad. So please convey that to uh, uh, to your dad. It would be great. 
And I, we, he, on his behalf, we thank you and we thank all your viewers. We've, we're overwhelmed with all the support and the love we've received. It's, uh, and we've been getting hundreds of emails. I can't keep up. So if you have been sending messages, uh, please be patient. I'm trying to get back here as soon as possible. I'm sure they'll, uh, they'll, they'll, they'll wait for sure. This has been a fantastic evening. Um, it feels, I almost say it's a weekend cause I usually do these shows on Friday. So I feel like I'm going into the weekend and it's only Tuesday now, but it's, it was a great night to speak with you. And I'm glad that you've got some positive spirit and it's good to see a smile and laugh a little bit tonight. And I'm sure that's, uh, it's good for you as well too. Yes, definitely. Awesome. awesome. Uh, right. last couple comments here. Uh, Eamon Weiss says, good luck to the Charvel family and hope you guys are back on your feet as soon as possible. I'm going to say goodbye to you off the air, so don't go anywhere else. Say goodbye to you. And everyone, thank you so very much for tuning in tonight. Uh, and Thanksgiving weekend for you guys this weekend, isn't it? Yes, it is. In Canada, we've already had ours, and I, I got a note about that earlier. So happy Thanksgiving to all our USA friends. I hope you enjoy the time with your family. And be, here's something to really give thanks for. There's a lot yes. of people in your neighborhood and other parts of the of California that aren't don't have a lot to, uh, to be thankful anymore. They're without a home, without maybe family. So really be blessed for what you have, and don't ever take it for granted. Amen to that. Awesome. Yes, We'll see you all very soon. And so don't go by, don't go anywhere. I'll say goodbye to you here, everyone. See you real soon. Until next time. Cheers. Hey, EVH Care TV and Eddie Van Halen fans. If you are like me, you find the time to read books difficult. Why not have it read to you? Grab one of three critically acclaimed Van Halen audiobooks like Van Halen Rising by Greg Renoff, Running with the Devil by Noel Monk, or Everybody Wants Some by Ian Christie, available right now from Audible. Sign up for a free trial with zero obligation to get any one of these three audiobooks today. You can cancel if you wish after your trial membership expires and keep the book there are many other great titles to choose from as well. Links in the description below, but just remember audibletrial.com slash TV. Click the link below and go grab your first free audiobook. Thank you for listening to this edition of EVH and Gear TV. This episode is being brought to you in part by VanHalenStore.com. Shop VanHalenStore.com for the largest selection of official Van Halen merchandise and memorabilia. Be sure to check out our website at evhgeardiscussion.com for more updates and follow us on social media.